and welcome once again to the monthly Vata podcast. Thank you all for everybody who's given us feedback and listened to our podcast over the last few months. We are delighted to be back again looking at some of the key events that have happened in India over the last month or so. Before we begin, just a plug for our website. If you are looking for the latest news stories from India, please do go and visit Vartha.in. That's V-A-R-T-A-A.in. Uh, we have a weekly digest that you can sign up for. Uh, it hit, hits your mailboxes every Monday morning. It has a snapshot of some of the key stories that have happened in India over the last week. We also have a very interesting data visualization in the form of a chart of the week where we look at one key issue and go behind the numbers and, and look at some of the trends. Today's podcast, we're covering some pretty important events in India. We'll talk about the GST bill that got passed last month, one of the major economic reforms that's happened since 1991. We'll talk about uh, the Independence Day speech from the Prime Minister and specifically the India-Pakistan policy shift that it might indicate with the references to Balochistan and Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. And we'll end by talking about India's performance in the Rio Olympics and uh, taking a more closer look at what happened there. All right, so let's kick off with uh, the GST. The goods and services tax has been in the works for a fairly long period of time. It was conceptualized towards the early, towards the late 90s, actually, as, as a simplification of the indirect tax regime in the country. Politically, the process has taken a, a long, long time to, to come to fruit, and which is not a surprise given that it, it is a constitutional amendment. Taxation uh, does, does the, the right to taxation at an indirect level falls to the states. And so the whole idea behind GST was to have one single national tax, which leads to simplification of markets across the country and thereby makes it easier to do businesses and not have complications at each state level. And so the, the states had to be bought into the idea and, and that that's a political process that that took a fairly long period of time. What is remarkable is that there was a great deal of consensus to begin with, and um, the political parties actually did manage to dif- solve some of their differences uh, and eventually come on board. The GST was first proposed uh, in the form of a bill by the UPA government uh, in its first tenure. It kind of got stuck. There were some disagreements with different chief ministers. Um, Narendra Modi, in fact, uh, himself admitted that he was not a particularly big, big fan to begin with, but then came on board. Um, some of the stronger chief ministers like Mamta Banerjee and Jay Lalitha also used it as a bit of a bargaining tool. And a lot of times the the, the meeting of, of the state and central finance commissions would get derailed just on the topic of GST. But we are finally here and um, it, it seems that some of the kinks, uh, particularly around how revenue would be shared, which was one of the big concerns, because now the GST would be collected in a centralized format and there'll be a central pool of revenue that would be given to the states. And that was the big kind of roadblock, which has now been resolved um, and, um, and, and, and been taken care of. In terms of structure, Parliament has passed the law. It needs to go to the states for ratification. The the states, at least, uh, if I'm not wrong, two-thirds of the states need to ratify it because this is a constitutional amendment. And behind the scenes, both the Congress and the BJP are working their state assemblies and getting their chief ministers aligned so that this passes smoothly. The deadline for implementation of GST is 1st of April 2017. The government has set up a national commission for the GST, which will administer the GST's implementation, which will also be looking at the tax receipts that come in and how they're distributed to different states uh, according to their to their respective share. Now, um, 
politically, as I said, this is an achievement because uh, a lot of issues in India tend to get gridlocked. Um, but but the Congress and the BJP were able to constructively come to an agreement, uh, specifically around some of the uh, the the Thorny amendments. Uh, and it kind of goes, and, and credit should be given to to the floor managers of both the parties that when the bill actually came up in both the Rajya Sabha and the Lok Sabha, it, it it was passed unanimously. It was there was there was no nays to the bill, um, which was which was wonderful to see, given how big the economic reform that GST indicates. Uh, many economists believe this is the most high-profile reform that India has passed since 1991. Uh, we'll see where or how successfully it is administered. There are some who have concerns, uh, particularly given the fact that now the states do not have any tax incentives as such to offer to businesses. And so um, does this break the linkage between the delivery of public services and collection of taxes by the states? And does does this kind of reduce their flexibility in, in giving tax benefits and thereby attracting more businesses to their states? So that dynamic of center-state relations and how the state governments react to this will, will is something that we'll have to see. For now, the big the big picture is that think of all those multitude of taxes that you pay when you cross one state's boundary into the other. Things like central sales tax, Octroi, and all those levies they'll be gone come first of April 2017, and we'll have a uniform single flat rate GST all across all across the country. Right. Uh, so at Vartha, we did a little bit more deep dive around some specifics of GST, and uh, Gaurang has has some more details around it, which he'll be talking to. So uh, over to you, Gaurang. Thanks, Aftab. And I guess to your point of you know um, how different states benefit differently or not to GST. You know, manufacturing heavy states like Maharashtra and Gujarat, as you mentioned, Modi had his own opposition towards this at the beginning. Basically, manufacturing heavy states uh, most likely could probably get less revenue due to the GST, whereas goods-consuming states like West Bengal are likely to benefit. There is, however, a provision in the bill so that the manufacturing states uh, get aided by the center uh, from the collected part of the overall GST. So, you know, all these things, as you imagine, uh, are still being ironed out. The the government is thinking of adding 15 more days to the winter session to get the details uh, of these and out, as well as give the states some time to pass the bill. Um, There's already talks that uh, the actual rollout might uh, be delayed to mid-year 2017. So let's take a look at what the real problems were that GST was proposed in the first place. As um, Aftab mentioned, there's... Taxation in India is quite complex. Uh, some of the issues rega- regarding uh, these complexities are, uh, for example, tax cas- cascading. That is, state charges VAT on excise duty paid to the central government. So businesses are taxed twice. Then there's complexity of defining the nature of transaction, whether it's a sale or a service, because currently there's different taxes applied to um, sale uh, and different taxes applied to the service. Uh, again, there is lack of uniformity in the provisions and rates. So each state has a different rate for a particular tax and different types of indirect taxes applied as well, like luxury tax or entertainment tax. Then there's an issue of determining whether a tax uh, a transaction is a local or central sale. 
So the result of all these issues is the tax system is pretty complex. And a lot of companies end up evading taxes. It affects ease of doing business. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, you can see trucks ending up in huge lines, trying to pay those octroi fees and etc. Eventually, the consumer also ends up paying a lot more tax. So the GST kind of promises to smooth these things up. The GST itself is, as uh, Aftab mentioned, supposed to be one tax, but internally it still constitutes the two components, the center and the state, So, it, which is the CGST and SGST. And basically, it kind of tries to merge the center component and the state components into one tax. Then there's a mechanism of interstate uh, IGST, which is the interstate transaction, which proposes to monitor the collecting of both of these components and also a way of integrating both in together. Now, the GST also promises a smooth payment mechanism via central IT system where businesses can register and pay tax. However, it still remains to be seen whether all of this infrastructure will be available in time before mid-2017. Now, there are notable issues with the current GST as well that uh, many important uh, goods and services are exempt from it. Example, the petroleum products, um, alcoholic products, stamp duty, vehicle tax, entertainment tax, etc., uh, and critics opine that having these exemptions severely waters down the effectiveness of the GST. So that means trucks still have to wait on these octotrols, uh, octoids and they are not going to go away anytime soon. However, overall, the GST promises to bring taxes on various goods and services down to 19 to 21%, uh, as opposed to currently 25 to 30%. Um, economists believe that you know the GST, as what uh, as after mentioned, also uh, will have revisions and inclusions iteratively, and it's definitely a big step in the right direction. Right, and uh, again, you know that kind of exemplifies the complexity below the GST or behind the GST, and the fact that so many things still need to be need to be put in place. It'll be interesting to see if alcohol actually comes under its purview. That's one of the biggest fighting issues when it comes to taxation, uh, at least in states where it's available. Right. So we'll we'll shift gears um, from GST and talk about Prime Minister Modi's Independence Day address and and what his shift in the India Park policy might signify. Uh, so Milan's been keeping a close eye on that, and, and uh, he'll take us to that. Milan, over to you. Thanks, Aftab. A little bit of background here. Uh, on August 14, Pakistan's Independence Day, um, Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif dedicated the 70th Independence Day to the people of Kashmir, specifically Indian Kashmir. Now, Pakistan has long tried to internationalize the issue of Kashmir, and this was just yet another attempt. Nothing surprising here. What was surprising was uh, the very next day in his address to the nation on um, India's 70th uh, Independence Day, PM Narendra Modi made a reference to Balochistan, Pakistan's largest province uh, to its southwest. So specifically, he thanked the people of uh, Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, uh, Gilgit and Balochistan, drawing attention to their struggle against um, Pakistani governance. An armed com- conflict has been ongoing in Balochistan ever since uh, Pakistan's annexation of the autonomous province in uh, 1948, and thousands have been reported missing. So apart from the obvious reasons of maintaining the integrity of its current borders, why is Balochistan important? 
well there are two main reasons first it is a mineral rich province um, and second it connects the chinese built port of gwadar which also lies in balochistan province um, um, it connects that to the northwest chinese province of xinjiang through the pakistan china economic corridor or pcec this corridor passes through balochistan as well as uh, pakistan occupied kashmir it could make beijing uh, pakistan's biggest ally extremely nervous if its economic interests were to come under serious threat in pakistan now critics have said that this move is a dramatic shift in india's foreign policy and that it will cause india to lose its moral ground by implying that india is meddling in pakistan's internal affairs so here's my opinion the the price india has paid for the moral high ground far exceeds the good goodwill it has brought us um i think it's time to abandon a foreign policy that has not shown results and try something new i have said this in the past during our discussion around india's energy membership drama and i will say it again foreign policy is mostly about leverage gaining strategic advantage over other nations in order to further your own interests it is rarely about compassion or fairness yes morality is an, is an important pillar of foreign diplomacy for a democratic nation but that cannot be uh, a guiding principle that is taken to an idealistic extreme now nehru's utopian foreign policy initiatives led to disastrous results for the country culminating in india's humiliating defeat in the indochina war as we all know um, india does not need to prove its position of moral superiority to the world anymore yes the indian government can be blamed for injustice towards the people of kashmir but its role as a responsible democracy is rarely contested on the world stage now pakistan on the other hand has lost credibility and is viewed with ever increasing suspicion by the world and especially american lawmakers and politicians as a sponsor of terrorism obviously the discovery of osama bin laden in, in its backyard in 2012 has not helped its case kautilya had prescribed sam dam dand bhed as legitimate tools for diplomacy um, now roughly they translate to cordiality payoffs punishments and division respectively although i personally i personally am not a big fan of the cynical real politics of either kautilya or machiavelli i think it is time to test bhed or driving division against pakistan if not actual execution of the strategy at least a credible threat of an internal insurgency could deter pakistan from causing trouble um, within india's borders in 2014 in fact the hawkish national security advisor to uh, prime minister modi um, who still is the national security advisor by the way uh, ajit doval uh, he'd made a statement to the effect of you cause another mumbai 2611 type incident in india and you could lose balochistan now having lost eastern pakistan or present day bangladesh in 1971 it could be a costly mistake on pakistan's part to treat this as an empty threat thanks milan that was a good summary of pm's um, baloch balochistan remarks and india's apparent policy shift towards pakistan um and now we move on to rio olympics and india's performance in the olympics it's well established now that we did quite poorly at the olympics this year um Here are some numbers in case you just wanted to know how bad we did. Indian contingent was the strongest of all the Olympics with 118 athletes. Well, 96 if you did at men's and women's hockey team of 11 each. Um, 
we won two medals one bronze one silver by total medal count we were 68th let's not even count by medal type shall we or uh medal count per population or gdp even um so yes um uh, and then again uh, we got 0.022 medals per athlete so you know there we did pretty bad too we are ranked 80th so yeah numbers and everything else says we did pretty badly however according to a live event report it wasn't a total di- disaster as compared to our previous performances um the article argues at an overall level the number of top 10 finishes fell from 28 in 2012 to 21 in 2016 uh, but this was largely on account of just two sports boxing and tennis similarly between ranks 11 and 20 the count fell from 28 to 24 but the losses are scattered across sports and sprinkled with occasional gains now so the article basically uh, argues that we did slightly better at some sports and stayed slightly worse at others which we historically do bad at anyway um if we look at how our athletes performed based on their performance bests we have a mis- mixed bag to there as well we saw some uh, records as well like uh, lalita bawar's national record in 3000 meters steeple chase ketaram and tonakal gopi recording personal bests in men's marathon and some great individual performances like aditya ashok in women's golf rover dattu bhunak uh, bukanal uh, shetler shrikant kidambi obviously there is deepa karmakar and of course our uh, medal winners pv sindhu and sakshi malik i should mention though that many of the these performance uh, the personal and national bests lack way behind the world bests um some of the disappointments though were uh, really bad like sina uh, sina nehwal's uh, early exit rohan bopanna and leander pace's first match exit shooters gagan narang and jitu rai missing out on medals and some thorny losses like, like <clears throat> abhinav bindra's fourth in a uh, 10 meter air rifle deepa karmakar missing out uh, on a medal uh Sanya Mirza Sanya Mirza and uh, Rohan Bopanna finishing fourth in mixed doubles then there's uh women freestyle wrestler 48 kg uh, category Vinesh uh, Fogat uh who had to exit due to a ligament injury in a game where she was actually leading and um who had a good chance at a medal as well um so now that we have uh, the round up covered let's look at the administrative side of it Um, we had a fair share of administrative group uh, goof ups in the olympics as well we had the embarrassment of sports minister uh, vijay goel screwing up names of athletes then the issue of clicking pictures with athletes after their events we had some state officials from haryana flying in business class and apparently having fun in brazil instead of cheering for athletes um and then we have the recent controversy of op jaisha who fainted at uh, the finish line as she did not get water uh, during her marathon run has no one manned the indian stall where each country is supposed to have their own refreshment stall in the marathon all these issues aside let's look at the monetary aspect of it we always complain of you know our athletes uh, are underfunded and uh, don't get enough support for from the administration <clears throat> the ministry of youth affairs and sports have formulated the top scheme basically it's called the target olympic podium scheme which is kind of a sub part of the national sports development fund and sdf with the objective of identifying and supporting 
potential medal prospects for 2016 and 2020 olympics um, and since its inception in 2014 it has spent 30 crores on 90 athletes from various sports and we'll have the link uh, for the hindustan times articles which illustrates the distribution of the amounts for to each athlete however it uh, further argues that the funding is still far less than the us uh, counterpart usoc which is the united states um, olympic committee viet varta also did recently a chart comparing the means of income of indian olympic association and usoc we see that uh, the uh, indian olympic association relies heavily on government funding whereas usoc has very low reliance on government funding a sizable chunk of funding comes from public funding sponsorship from companies and its own investments it has a profit sharing ties with international olympic committee and gets a major chunk of revenue from there as well however a key takeaway for india is to have more companies sponsoring athletes more public contributions and you know more reforms in sports organizations to facilitate these kind of interactions overall our approach to olympics has always been reactive and pro- uh, than proactive our level of um, athletes as well are still not up to international mark and chances of india making huge advances in 2020 games still remain bleak yeah i almost sometimes feel that like what we have done with uh, corporate social responsibility you know if if there is a tax incentive given to corporates you know you get like any money you invest in creating sports infrastructure or sponsoring an athlete who eventually goes to the olympics can be counted as tax deductible i don't know i mean that's probably one way to get money into it it just seems that in 2012 the picture was a little rosy we had the mittels champion trust and the olympic gold quest and both of them seem to be i mean the mittel champion trust is defunct now and an olympic gold quest it, it's a wonderful initiative but there's only so many number of athletes that that they can support um, and so there's the scalability in this situation is is a big issue um and and yes i agree with you i think funding is is, is probably one of the big big things governance of course has been a, a perennial problem in indian sport as well yep and if i may add after i think there's there's a plethora of really good um policy related initiatives that that india could adopt um at 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 the more grassroots level and i think there's a lot of smart people in the country who can who can really contribute uh, to this discussion there could be sports scholarship on the lines of um the ones here in the us um, you know that system has created uh, really good athletes especially football and basketball players uh, for the us um there could be you know some sort of crowdfunding platforms uh, that india could launch um or a big um, boost for a single sport from uh, from a corporate entity so this there's a uh, you know no dearth of ideas here um to your point right and i, uh, and I think to close it off right uh, the biggest shift i think has to be uh, to shift from our dependence on government to fund projects i agree and i think one thing if anybody in the government is a lover of indian sports the first thing that they need to do is get the national sports federation bill that ajay makan had proposed in 2012 passed uh i don't think is ever going to happen because all politicians are on the gravy train of federations but that bill had some key reforms that would make sports governance much much more cleaner 
in India. Um, it was a bold step, but unfortunately, there's just too many vested interests for that to become light of the day. But uh, that is what it is, unfortunately. Right, we'll wrap up the discussion around Rio Olympics and kind of move towards the last section of our podcast, which is the one interesting story about India that you saw this week and caught your eye. Um, so I can go first, and this is a slightly funny one. Shivraj Singh Johan was photographed while doing a tour of flooded areas in MP, and he was actually being carried by two policemen, uh, not on their shoulders, but practically one policeman holding one leg and the other one holding another leg and he had his arms around them and his whole entourage was was behind him it was almost like a royal procession where the king is being carried so that he doesn't have to put his feet in the water so he's being carried across like a mini stream which was which was flooded so it was being done so that the chief minister doesn't get dirty or his feet don't get wet and created a bit of a storm on social media where uh, mr chohan himself is a presence on twitter and uh, when he was asked about it, he said, the policeman picked me up uh, before I realized what was happening, <laughs> which was, uh, again, an explanation that didn't really go down well. And one of the funniest pieces that I did read was um, an article by Unreal Times, which said that uh, Mr. Vijay Goyal and his contingent of Olympic um, officials should actually be punished by asking them to do a relay race by holding Mr. Chauhan up and run 400 meters uh, in the stadium. <laughs> so that, that was funny. But again, I think it kind of goes down to the whole VIP culture and VIP privilege that we often keep talking about. And um, is again, um, <laughs> in this case, it was more uh, an instance of amusement uh, on, on two counts on that. Right, I'll pass it out to either of you guys for your uh, interesting news item of the week. Sure, I can go uh, next off. Uh, so the one interesting story that I came across, uh, and this is uh, actually fresh off the press. Uh, this is an event that took place today. Uh, ISRO te- tested um, scramjet technology. So India's space agency, ISRO, um, has tested this brand new rocket technology. It's called Scramjet, and, and it's just amazing. So basically with Scramjet, the rocket can utilize atmospheric ox- oxygen to uh, burn fuel. This dramatically reduces the weight of the rocket and increases the potential payload it can carry. Since there's no more need to um, carry any liquid oxygen um, on the rocket for the oxidization of the fuel itself. Um, the technology was tested only for uh, six seconds or so, and it will be some time before it becomes fully mature and operational, but it's definitely a promising start. And only a handful of nations have managed to test this technology so far, so definitely a proud moment, moment for um, for Israel and India. So <clears throat> my story found interesting or more concerning was... Um, I think last uh, weekend, the announcement from Flipkart that it has not doing, been doing well on its uh, targets. Uh, co-founder Sachin Bansal uh, mentioned that their company missed their targets and he himself was replaced as the CEO as well uh, due to these. Uh, the concern is basically of uh, all these promising Indians, the original startups, which at least Flipkart now is definitely not a startup, but companies like Flipkart and Ola do losing ground to their um, international counterparts like Amazon and Uber. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out to the budding um, startup 
market in india is flipkart still a unicorn guys or has the valuation slipped below the billion dollar mark now still a unicorn still a unicorn solidly a unicorn yeah but uh, hemorrhaging cash but still a unicorn but to corroborate gorang's point i read a couple of articles as well which basically says amazon is eating flipkart's lunch in india yeah they i mean they have problem problem on their hand yeah i i agree with you after with uh, with their uh, operational excellence uh, a model that amazon uh, pursues here in the us and elsewhere um i think it would be and their deep pockets um i think it would be a worthy contender for uh, all of india's um, e-commerce startups um, it's it's hard to believe that um, you know amazon would be a, a silent spectator and uh, uh, not make a major competitive move in the indian market Uh, the way amazon has operated is uh, it's treated the e-commerce market as a winner take all market uh, it's played out here in the us i don't see why um, it it won't be a similar scenario in uh, in india as well we've definitely seen it in china uh, where uber sold its stake um, to a, a local chinese company because that's how these markets tend to work uh, made be right share made be e-commerce it's usually heavily dominated by uh, the the biggest player right all right so tough news for flipkart but uh, but but good news for india overall on the economic front um, and hopefully we'll do better in the next olympics and and some of the suggestions on this podcast will will actually be implemented right we're going to wrap up now um thanks both to milind and gorang for the awesome analysis and the commentary that they've provided um and for our listeners we urge you again come and visit our website varta.in sign up for our weekly newsletter you can obviously find all of our previous podcasts as well uh thank you for your feedback and uh and please leave us a rating on iTunes it helps other people find our podcast thanks guys and uh, till next time thank you everyone